罗马书第八章一到五节：如今那些在基督耶稣里的就不定罪了，因为赐生命圣灵的律在基督耶稣里释放了我，使我脱离罪和死的律。律法既因肉体软弱有所不能行的，神就差遣自己的儿子成为最深的形状，做了赎罪祭，在肉体中定了罪案。使律法的义成就在我们这不随从肉体，只随从圣灵的人身上，因为随从肉体的人体贴肉体的事，随从圣灵的人体贴圣灵的事。Reading from Romans chapter eight, verse one through five. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit. Who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have the mi- minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Good morning, everyone. What a blessing it is indeed to be a child of God. Uh, thank you, worship team, for、uh, directing us again into God's presence. It's always a blessing to me when I get up and and speak、um, to be encouraged by that worship. You rescued me, and I will sing. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That speaks very much to me, because this is not a comfortable place for me being up up front, but. Because of that, because I'm a child of God, I'm no longer a slave to fear. My name's John Wolf. I've been in Beijing a little over three years now、uh, with my wife, and originally with three of our kids, three of our five kids. The other two were still in school at the University of Washington in Seattle, and、uh, and now our next two have gone off to college. So we're left with just. My wife and I and our youngest Abigail. We're going to be looking at、uh, Galatians chapter four this morning. We're in the、uh, in the middle of a series on Galatians.、Uh, Mark Lang and John Hill and Cam- Cameron Gates have done a, a great job of of introducing us to to Paul's concern. For the church in Galatia and what's going on, and to this whole issue of of not just salvation by works versus salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but but living by grace through faith in Christ. And so we're going to continue that this morning. I want to, before I begin, reference some.、Um, this is not. The first series we've had in the Book of Galatians、uh, in this church, Ed Graham, I think, over probably maybe a three-year period,、um, preached through the Book of Galatians, and 
And I, I've listened to his, his message on Galatians 4. Um, it's, it's a little bit different. He starts in verse 8 and goes to chapter 5, verse 1. But I was really blessed by his message, so I want to commend that to you. He, he touched on some areas that I'm not going to touch on this morning. So, uh, so if this wet, whets your appetite, appetite, or if I don't cover some things, some questions you may have wanted um, to, uh, to consider, to think about, to, to ponder, then, uh, then I commend that message to you. It's available on the, uh, the CCC website. You can go there and look up uh, sermons and find, find that message. But since we're, uh, we're now halfway through, we've covered the first three chapters starting into the second half, I wanted to start out by just doing a quick review of where we've come from, what we've covered so far. Uh, so just touching on some of the highlights from the first three chapters. But before we do that, let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, I, I want to start by acknowledging, as always, my dependence upon you. Lord, uh, you know how little I have to offer. My wisdom, my strength are not sufficient, Lord. And yet you use your weak vessels for your purposes. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning. I pray that, that you would speak to the heart of each person here and give them something to grab hold of that will, that will move them forward in their journey of faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting with a little bit of an overview, um, as, as uh, the, the ones who have come before have done a great job of describing, uh, Paul's addressing some, some uh, false teaching that had come into the church and was influencing the Galatians. This, this teaching that, uh, that, that Christ and his work on the cross was not quite enough. Responding to that in faith was not enough to make us acceptable to God. That it was necessary to add to that the works of the law in order to be made acceptable to God. And that's the error that Paul's addressing. And, and he starts right off in the greeting, beginning to address that. And this, he starts off with the defense of his, of his apostleship. Because, uh, because these false teachers, in order to under, undermine the message, the gospel message that Paul had preached, they had to undermine him personally. So he starts off with a, a defense of his apostleship right out of the gates in verse 1, chapter 1 in the greeting. He proclaims that his status as an apostle was not from human origin. He was not sent from men. He was not sent by the agency of man but he was sent directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's not a personal defense for him. You know, in, in, uh, in verse 10 in chapter 1, he makes it clear he's not seeking man's approval. And in defending his apostleship, he's not looking for their approval. He's not looking you know, for the, the sake of his standing for them to recognize him and his authority. But rather, it's... it's it's the gospel that's at stake 
and, and Paul's defense of his apostleship is really a defense of the gospel that he had proclaimed to them, which, which likewise he had not received from human origin. He had not received that from men. And then subsequently got, got a little bit wrong, distorted that, that message, as I'm sure the, uh, the false teachers were claiming. But he had received this gospel directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. And we can read the story of that in the book of Acts, chapter 9, as I recall. But then in chapter 1, Paul goes on to express his astonishment that the Galatians so quickly were deserting the true gospel and turning to what was not a gospel at all. The word that's translated gospel, and actually the word gospel itself, means good news. So the point he's making is that what they've received, what they're, what they're being influenced by, is not good news at all. It's not really gospel. But how serious is this? You know, Paul's addressing this issue in the letter, and, and it's, you know, if, if you, I, I haven't done, I haven't gone and looked in detail at every letter that Paul wrote, but I, I'm pretty sure that of all the letters Paul wrote around this length or longer, this is the most singularly focused on one topic, this issue of law versus grace, law versus faith. But is it an intellectual discussion? Is there, is there some gray area? Is there room for disagreement among, among brothers in Christ? Paul makes it very clear the answer to that is no. He says in verse 8 to 9, let anyone who preaches a different gospel than what he proclaimed to them be accursed. This is serious business. And then in chapter 2, Paul goes on to say that, that even though the gospel he proclaimed was not from human origin. It was, the truth of it was validated by the, uh, the, the um, accepted leaders in the extended church at that time, Peter, James, and John, when he met with them. They had nothing to change when he presented the gospel that he was preaching, but agreed, yes, continue to preach that message. That is the true gospel message. Then he goes on, he argues that contrary to the false gospel that's being proclaim to them, you know, whether Jew or Gentile, no, nobody, whether Jew or Gentile, can be justified before God that is counted as righteousness. Nobody can be counted as righteous by works of the law, but only through faith in Christ. Then Paul, Paul goes on to make it clear that he's not only referring to salvation by grace in Christ, as I mentioned earlier, but also continuing on and living by grace through faith. We don't start out initially being justified by faith and then transition as we live out our salvation, as we live our life in Christ to being justified by works. It doesn't work that way. It's all by grace through faith. So why does Paul take this so seriously? You know, that he says of those proclaiming this so-called gospel that includes justification by works, that he says of them, let them be accursed. Why is it so serious? Well, verse 21 in chapter 2 makes that clear. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I mean, that's serious. There's no reason for Christ to die for sin, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, 
if righteousness, if justification could be obtained by works of the law. And then moving on to chapter 3, Paul reminds the, uh, the Galatians that they received the Spirit. You know, that, that evidence of their, of their acceptance into God's family. They received the Spirit not by works of the law, not by achieving righteousness by what they had done, but it was when they responded in faith to the message of Jesus Christ crucified on their behalf, having paid the penalty for for sin for them. And having but begun with the Spirit, Paul asked them, why? why continue on by seeking to be perfected through the flesh, which was essentially what they were being taught by works of the law? It doesn't make sense. Paul points out that even, even Abraham, the one through whom the promise of blessing originally came, that, that eventually came through Christ, to the Jews, and then also through the Jews to the Gentiles. Even he was counted as righteous because of his faith and not because of works of the law, which came actually 430 years after the promise that Abraham received. Paul doesn't make the point here, but in Romans it even goes a step further and talks about circumcision. Even circumcision came after the promise, after the proclamation that... that, uh, that Abraham was deemed righteous because of his faith. It was a sign of the covenant, a sign of the promise. It was not, it was not circumcision by which he was justified. In fact, Paul says that those who rely on the works of the law, the law are under a curse because no one is capable of keeping the whole law and therefore being justified by works of the law. But he, he, then, he then talks about that, that great grace that we've received, that Christ became a curse for us through the cross and thus redeemed us from the curse. He purchased us uh, by his blood. And then finally, Paul begins to address the obvious question, well, why, why then the law? If we can't be justified by works of the law, why, why is the law? And, and Cam addressed that in some detail um, last week. His, his initial response is simply that the law is given because of transgressions. And not just that, but, be, but for a time, until the offspring of Abraham, through whom the world would be blessed, referring to Jesus Christ, had come. In verse 21, he notes that, uh, that though the law does represent a form of righteousness, the weakness of the law is that it cannot make one righteous. It cannot give life. And that's why it was not sufficient. That's why it was, its purpose was temporary. And then Paul finishes out chapter 3 by describing um, those under the law as being in a negative sense, imprisoned by it because, because we're slaves to our sin. We can't, we can't free ourselves. We're imprisoned by it. But in a, in a positive sense, also he describes it as a guardian, that it, that it had a positive pur- purpose of, of guardianship until Christ came, through whom justification by faith, which was God's ultimate plan and purpose, would be revealed. 
And so that brings us to our, our passage this morning in chapter 4. So if, if you have a Bible, please turn there. How many actually have physically, physical Bibles these days I mean, that they bring in? Oh, there's still some, okay. <laughs> if you don't have a physical Bible, I don't know, what's the, what do you say about an electronic one? Not turn, you don't turn the pages, but anyway, go to chapter 4. So chapter 4 starts out with a, a continuation of that analogy that I just mentioned of the law as a guardian, um, which was just introduced at the end of chapter 3. So let's, let's read the, uh, the first seven verses. I mean the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Literally, it's the Lord of all, though he is the Lord of all. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I'll start with just a, a quick translation note. Um, you noticed in, chap- in verse 3, it has that term elemental princ- elementary principles. And, and, and I want to just touch on that because your version may be a little bit different and it may sound like it has a different sense. You know, for example, the, uh, the NIV there goes with elemental spiritual forces, which can have a little bit of a different connotation. Uh, but the Greek word there just means, you know, the basic things, the, the foundational things, the elementary things. And so, uh, so that, that word could be used of the ABCs, for example. You know, that, that, those foundational elements. And uh, its sense can vary depending on the context. And, and we, have, we have it used in a couple different contexts in this chapter that we're looking at now. Um, just, you know, first, a little bit later in this chapter, um, Paul uses that word in reference to the Gentiles previously serving false gods. And I, and I assume that's why the NIV goes with this sense of elemental spiritual forces. But, however, it's, it's also used in this chapter in reference to the Jews being held captive under the law. So I think, I think what, what's clear is that in this passage, when this word is used, it's referring to some kind of regression, some, time, some kind of backward step. Um, it's... It's like an accomplished poet going back to the ABCs and sounding out words letter by letter, but in a moral sense. But the overall point of this passage we just read is that just as the guardian has a good purpose with respect to the heir, you know, setting boundaries of good behavior and ensuring that, that those boundaries are respected and followed, you know, even to the point although the heir is eventually the master <laughs> of the guardian, but even to the point that if discipline is required, the, the, uh, the guardian has the authority to discipline the heir. 
And, and similarly, the law had a good purpose. Um, and, and Cameron addressed this a little bit last week, but uh, you know, in, 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 a, in the same way, it set boundaries for righteous behavior. But just as the guardianship of the heir was temporary, you know, and it was only in place until the, uh, until the heir had reached uh, maturity in a moral sense, had come of age, you know, the law likewise was also temporary. And it was until the time, it was put in place until the time when God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, being counted as righteous before God in his presence, not because of our own works, but because of the work of Christ on the cross, by grace, through faith in him, by receiving the gift that that he would offer through his son. Then through faith in Christ, according to verse 6, we receive the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And to me, that's a, that's a great picture of what it means for the law. It's not that the law went away. The law, after Christ, is written on our hearts. And to me, this is a good picture of that. I want to just briefly look back in Jeremiah where that, uh, where that was prophesied. Um, chapter 31, verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So the, the Galatians themselves had received the Spirit as I mentioned earlier, through faith in Christ in response to the true gospel that was proclaimed to them by Paul and Barnabas, who was with them. But now, under the influence of these false teachers, they were being persuaded that in order to be justified, they had to add to this, you know, add to their faith in Christ, to his work on the cross, the works of the law in order to be counted as righteous before God. They had to place themselves back under its guardianship, which is a regressive, a step backwards, regressive step. So this is the gospel that the false teachers were proclaiming, which was really no gospel at all. It's not good news, as the word means. It would make, because it would make them slaves again under the law. But what about us? You know, I, the, the book of Galatians, Paul's addressing this particular teaching that, that, that told them they had to add the works of the law to faith in Christ. 
but I don't, I don't think any of us are tempted to place ourselves under the Jewish law. I mean, is anybody, you know, you men, are you concerned about if you're not circumcised that you should be circumcised? Or do you feel that the fact that you are circumcised makes you righteous in God's sight? What about the dietary laws? Are you concerned that you've followed strictly the Jewish dietary laws? Probably not. It's probably not something that keeps you awake at night. What about the Jewish festivals or the Sabbath laws? You know, not, not the general law to keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, but the specific laws that the Jews had created to make sure they kept it holy. You can't walk further than this. You can't do this. You can't place this here. You can't, you know, very specific laws um, about the Sabbath. Are you concerned that you're maybe not following all those laws? No, I don't think so. And I could go on, of course. But, but do we do the equivalent of this? Do we seek to obtain righteous standing through other means than through faith in Christ? You know, some, within the context of the church, you know, church attendance, do we feel we're righteous before God because we attend church week after week? Is it a good thing to attend church week after week? Yes, it's a good thing. But does it give us righteous standing before God? No, it doesn't. What about baptism? It's, a, it's obedience to Christ to be baptized as an expression of your faith. But, but does that give you righteous standing before God? No, it doesn't. It's a symbol of what's happened in your heart, which does give you righteous standing before God because of Christ's work. What about communion? You know, if you came from a Catholic background, these things are very, <laughs> I mean, there's a very strong sense of, you know, if, if you don't attend Mass every week, if you don't take communion every week, if you don't confess your sins to the priest, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, you're no longer in righteous standing before God and you need to be made right with God. But even for us, you know, these things can be um, areas where we seek righteousness through works. Tithing. We think because we tithe, because we're generous, that makes us righteous before God. No, the, the heart that does, the heart that, that is, is generous um, is from God, and the response is good, but that doesn't, tithing does not make us righteous. You know, observing the church calendar, some, some pay, still pay attention to the church calendar, to Lent, to Advent, etc., are those good things? They can be very good things. They can point us to Christ, to his work on our behalf. But is observing them, does that give us righteousness? No. And then there are many other ways. There are many, many things that we do that are good works. They're truly good works. But do we do them from the right motives? Do we do it from the right reason? Do we do it from an outflow of Christ working through us? Or do we do it out of guilt? Because we think if we don't, we won't be considered righteous before the Father. So each of us, I'm sure, have things that we do that, that we feel give us righteous standing before God. Or take away from our righteous standing if we don't do them. So that's, that's something, you know, it's not always on the surface. And, and I'll, I'll leave that for you to consider prayerfully. Let's move on to the next passage here, starting in verse 8. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not gods. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and, weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may be much that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So here Paul again reminds the Galatians of their former condition, that they were enslaved by gods who were not really gods. He characterizes what they're now doing, seeking justification through works of the law, as returning to that state of being enslaved, in a different way perhaps, not under false gods, but under the law. In verse 9, he expresses his astonishment again that they would return to these weak and worthless things after coming to know God. And note the, note the nuance in verse 9 that Paul adds, that in reality, it's not that they came to know God by their own efforts, so to speak, but that they came, be, came to be known by God, emphasizing the grace which the, by which they were called by the Father. As Paul sees the Galatians practicing the Jewish law, here, here referring to observance, uh, presumably, of the Jewish calendar, you know, talking about um, observing days and months and seasons and, and years, um, and, and probably going beyond the main festivals, you know, implying adherence to the detailed Sabbath laws and, and other observances. Uh, Paul wonders if his labor on their behalf has been in vain because they won't find righteous standing before God by these works of the law that they're adding on. They've gone from treating him with special honor, respect, and self-sacrifice even as the one who proclaimed the true gospel, their salvation, to them, to treating him as an enemy, as the false teachers among them had, had attacked him personally in order to undermine the true gospel for their selfish purposes. The false teachers, he, he says, were seeking their adulation and probably had other self-serving motives as well. I'm not going to go into that further this morning, but again, I'll commend Ed's message to you because he had some good thoughts on, on that. He also had some very interesting thoughts on the ailment that Paul refers to, so I'll commend that to you as well. I'm, I just passed over it uh, as I read. But continuing on, this passage again emphasizes that the Galatians, having begun with the true gospel, true gospel, which is good news indeed, were now turning aside from what was valuable beyond measure to that which was worthless. And this brings me back to the point that I made earlier as I was reviewing the previous, previous chapters from, from
from Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The point that I'm referring to is that it is not only salvation by grace through faith that's important, but continuing on and living by grace through faith. I think if we allow God the freedom to search our hearts and to reveal to us what he finds there, we'll find that we have some elements of works-based righteousness in the way we live. But what does it mean to live by faith? You know, obviously that's a big question. Elsewhere it says the righteous man will live by faith. But I think Paul gives us some elements of that in, you know, going back to chapter 2 and verses 19 and 20. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So I think living by faith involves a denial, a denunciation of works-based righteousness. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. It involves dying to ourselves. Putting his will before our own. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It involves abiding in Christ, allowing him to live through us. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living by faith involves an acknowledgement of what Christ has done for us, a, a real understanding and an embracing what he's done for us. That we've been bought, by, bought at a price, bought by his precious blood shed on the cross. I mean, at, th- at this point, I could invite Pastor Rick up to, to come talk about his favorite subject, abiding in Christ. And, and what he's going to say is very close in my mind to what it means to live by faith. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to me, it comes down to submitting ourselves day after day to the will of God, trusting fully that he's good, that he has a good purpose for us, and that he's able to accomplish that good purpose in and through us. And then just saying, you know, Lord, I'm yours. Do with me whatever you will. According to your good purpose, I'll rely on your wisdom and strength, faithfully supplied according to my need. And will not trust in my own wisdom and strength. I have nothing to offer of my own. My righteousness is as as filthy rags in your sight. Rather, I put my hope in Christ's righteousness alone. So I'm not going to go through the last part of chapter 4. I don't have time to do that this morning. I'll leave that for you to do on your own. But it it continues in this same theme. It has some very interesting elements to it. (laughs) I wish I had two weeks to... To preach through this, um, but but really emphasizing that choice that we have to live by faith and live by works. The result and the results of that choice either either freedom in Christ or slavery under the law. But let me end with a few application questions for all of us to prayerfully consider. And actually, the f- the first one I'll start with the the first things first. Have you put your faith in the one who can give life, Jesus Christ, who offered himself up on the cross as the perfect sacrifice and purchased your freedom with his blood? 
It's, incred it's an incredible gift. Have you responded to that with faith? Have you trusted him as your Savior and as your Lord? Obviously, you can't go on and live by faith if you have not <laughs> received him in faith. So first things first. Second one, for those of us who have received him, who have trusted in him, what do you try to add to faith in Christ in an attempt to make you, make yourself acceptable to God? And that's, that's something that requires some prayerful <laughs> consideration. And like I said before, I'm sure that all of us have areas where we add to faith in Christ. We add works in order to try to make ourselves acceptable before God. And then finally, the last one, have you moved beyond salvation by grace through faith to living by grace through faith, abiding in Christ day by day, you know, truly being connected to the vine, you know, receiving his strength, receiving his wisdom, receiving his direction in all that we do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's very natural for us to, to live by works. And it's very difficult for us to just, just let go and let you work in us, in us and through us and live by faith not being a slave to fear, but trusting in your leading as you direct us on the path that you would have us go according to your good purpose. You know, not, uh, not making decisions out of, because of our own capability or our own wisdom or what we can do or can't do, but because we trust in you. We know that if you, if you ask something of us, you supply all that we need in order to do that. Help us, Lord, to trust fully in you. Help us to live every day by faith. Help us to remain in the vine, connected to the vine, abiding in you, abiding in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.